Thanks, fellas. Boy, you hate to follow that. <laughs> so, uh, Pastor Chris is uh, gone this week. He's in a softball tournament down in Columbus. So, if you've um, been, it's just your first time here, and you were told, you know, come and hear the, uh, you got to come and hear my pastor, you know, tall, good-looking, red-headed guy, um, I'm sorry. You'll have to come back next week to, to hear him. Now you're, now you've got the fourth string today. But, uh. <laughs> We'll see how we do. I think we'll, I think we'll be okay. So uh, today's message, as uh, Pastor Nate was talking, we are still in the book of Matthew, and it's called Hammer Time. And, um, uh, you know, you never run out of enemies to kill, right? And so uh, we're going to talk about uh, what, what does, what's that all about, right? And so Matthew, um, just to give you a little recap, Matthew was one of Jesus' guys. He was one of the, what we call the disciples, a close group of 12 that Jesus had chosen. He was one of the 12 that was sent out on a short missionary journey. We studied that a, a few weeks back. And um, uh, that what we call the apostles. And that's just a word that means sent out. And so Matthew um, had witnessed these things that Jesus was doing and uh, decided at some point that it was time to sit down and, and write about it. And so we have a tendency to kind of think of the Bible as, you know, something that God wrote or that Jesus wrote, and he didn't, and they were people. And that's important for us because we've got to understand that Matthew's writing about things that he saw and did, right? He was a real person living in history that wrote about his experiences with this incredible person named Jesus. And so um, in that book, he's telling us something about, uh, about how Jesus was, you know, how Jesus was born and where what he did and what he taught and the kinds of things that he heard Jesus say. And in this section, he happens to be talking about, he's spending some, a good bit of time showing us different responses to Jesus and his message. And he's already kind of given us a, a clue that this is coming because in, uh, back in chapter 10, uh, verse 34, Jesus says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And so what Jesus is just saying is that because of my message and because of who I am and the nature of what I'm doing, it's naturally going to create different responses in different people. And so there's going to be division. There's going to be these different people that respond to Jesus in all these different ways. And so that we're going to kind of explore that. But before we do that, I want to just kind of set the stage a little bit for what we're talking about today. Now, our nation, our country, America, is, um, you could argue very, very well that we are a nation of peace, right? We pursue peace. We, we want peace. We don't go looking for a fight. Sometimes a fight finds us, but we, uh, we don't go looking for that fight. We don't usually start the fight, but we will finish it. And uh, something that my dad always taught me, right? Don't, don't, swing the, don't take the first punch, but take the last one. And so, um, and, and yet, no, knowing that we are a nation of peace, if you just look at our history just in the, in the last 100 years or so, we have been one at war on a fairly regular basis. And it's been a war where we've had, we've had wars where we fought, where we were on, side, on the same side with some people on some wars, and then those people became our 
allies later, and then we were fighting the other people who were actually our allies before, and so it just kind of goes back and forth. So we just, every time we turn around, these shifting alliances, shifting enemies, all these things that happen over time as, as nations grow and change and have different goals and, and opportunities, and then we find ourselves wrapped up in this. And it really, in some ways, shouldn't surprise us. I mean, that's the way our, our, natu- our lives are, right? We always have some enemy, right? So you think about your, in your life, right? There's uh, people at work, neighbors, family members, whatever, conflict. And the conflict changes from time to time. So you, you think, well, if, if, I, if I could just get that boss to quit, if they just fire that guy, then I'd be all right. And then they fire that guy, and then you get a new boss, and you're not all right. Because the new boss is worse than the last boss, right? Or at least the same boss. And every time you turn around, no matter, you know, your neighbor moves, and then another neighbor moves in, and you hate their dog instead of their kid. And so it just never stops, right? And we know that. We, we know that. From, and that's not a church thing. That's not a Bible thing. That's not a God. That's just life, right? And we all, that's our common experience. And so 2,000 years ago, Jesus had kind of something to say about that to some people around him about what, what, you know, the appropriate response to that if you're going to be a Jesus follower. How should you respond to that, this reality of life that we have all these enemies? And so in the, setting that up, Jesus has just got through talking about uh, John the Baptist. And so what had happened was, and Pastor Chris covered this last week, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, and he was sent ahead of Jesus to preach a message preparing people for the coming of Jesus. And John is now sitting in prison. And so he's hearing all these things that Jesus is doing. He sends some of his guys to talk to Jesus and say, Jesus, I mean, I, 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 I'm thinking you're the Messiah, but I'm not, I'm not positive. What, what's up with that? I mean, are you really? And Jesus assures him that, that yes, he, he is. He's the Messiah, so you don't need to worry. And then after, after these guys leave, um, Jesus, the, Jesus turns to the people around him, and he starts to talk about John and the, the response to John. And now we get into the situation where we're seeing some responses to the way Jesus, to Jesus' ministry and, the, and his, his message. And so Matthew could have just given us a bullet point list on a PowerPoint telling us that, you know, People responded by rejecting Jesus, and these were some of those people, and this is why. And the people responded by accepting Jesus, and here's some of those people, and here's why. And then people responded by being unsure. Oh, here's John the Baptist. He was an example of that. But, you know, they didn't have PowerPoint back then. And Matthew just, he does it a different way. So we've got to kind of mine it. We've got to kind of read these stories and try to guess or try to understand what Matthew's trying to illustrate to us by using these stories that, that, that he experienced. And so now, we're, you know, we step into that now in these few chapters. And so John is an example of somebody who was uncertain about Jesus and uncertain about what he was going to do. And so then he turns after, after this and says, so to what do I compare this generation, this generation being his generation, his contemporaries, the people that he was dealing with at the time, they are like children sitting in a marketplace and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, but you did not dance. And we sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. So what's that all about, right? That's kind of an odd statement. So have you ever seen children that no matter what you do, they're just not happy, right? Like all of our children? Yeah, so you, you, they cry for a toy, and you give them the toy, and then they cry, throw it against the wall and cry even harder, right? 
And um, we, or you know, they, and so you watch them playing with other children, and the you know the child wants to play. Well, do you want to play this? No, I don't want to play that. Well, do you want to play this? No, I don't want to do that. Well, what do you want to do? I mean, come on. And so that's what he's saying here, right? This, this, these people are like that. They're like little kids that you 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 try to play. You know, well, let's dance. No, I don't want to do that. Well, let's play like we're in a funeral. No, let's not do that. Well, what do you want to do, right? And so, and you know, as adults, we never act that way, do we? Yeah, you never, you never see adults act that way. And you, of course, you never act that way. I know you guys don't. But yeah, I mean, that's what Jesus is saying. Is that, does it, does it seem like they're, that, that they, they can't be made happy? He's like, why? Why does he say that? Well, he says, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. So we'll pause there for a second. So we know John must have ate and drank something, right? I mean, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you know that uh, Pastor Chris described John that he ate bugs and honey, right? And you'll know, dip the the thing about eating about eating locusts. If you ever want to, make sure you pull the legs and the wings off first, right? Because it just doesn't go down very good otherwise. And so, so yeah. But John ate the Spartan diet, right? He was a wild man. He was a Nazarite. And what the Nazarites would do is the Nazarites wouldn't drink any wine or grape juice or eat raisins even. And they were, there were other things they would do, too. They wouldn't cut their hair, etc. And it was, a, it was a vow they would make for some short time period where they would live this Spartan lifestyle as a vow to God. And then they would stop doing that and go back to their regular lives. Well, John did that his whole life. And so when they saw John and the way he was acting, they said, well, he has a demon, right? And so then he says, and the Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and they say he is a glutton and a drunkard. So we have to pause there for a second and ask ourselves, what's, no, wait a minute, what's the, what's, the, what's the comparison here? The comparison is that, um, and Luke kind of draws this out a little more. Luke was another one of these guys that wrote about Jesus. He was another contemporary of these guys we call the apostles, and he probably knew Matthew, and so he sat down at some point to write his, his remembrances or his, his, the story that he had heard, and he said, he kind of fills it out a little bit. And he tends to do this. He tends to give more detail. He says that John came neither eating, drinking wine or eating bread, which we know, right? Because that's the way John lived. And so by comparison, Jesus must have drank wine and ate bread. And in fact, they said he was a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So evidently, Jesus was a partier, Right? At least that's what they accused him of, of being a partier. And I, got, I have to pause there just a second. This is, I'm going to throw this in for free because I have to do this because of our modern American culture. right? Our modern American culture has this picture of alcohol as compared to church or believers that we've got to kind of knock down a little bit. Because here's the thing, right? Um, there is no good biblical or historical or linguistic or cultural reason to believe that Jesus, when it says that Jesus drank wine, that he drank, did not drink wine. He did. And we've got to get that out of our heads if it's in there. Now, does the Bible also tell us that alcohol is dangerous? Well, sure it does. It says there's a snake in there, right? But it doesn't condemn the consumption of alcohol. And I, I don't want to have to say that, but I feel like I have to at this stage. So we get, we've got the stage set, right? We've got John on the one hand acting a certain way. 
They didn't like that. And then we got Jesus, on the other hand, acting another way, and they didn't like that. They just didn't like anything, right? They, they always, they, they didn't like either way, e- either direction. And then he just really clears things up and says, by wisdom, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Thanks, Jesus. That's helpful. Um, I, you know, Jesus is just saying, listen, the proof's in the pudding. I'm doing these miracles. You can see what I'm doing. Look, I healed the leper. All you got to do is look at what we're doing. And you know that, that, that the message we're preaching is one that you should be accepting. And so then he moves on, and he, he starts to get into, gets a little harsher. Now, the thing we, the, 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 the question that ought to be in our heads at this point is, is why did all these people um, have these different responses to Jesus? When we said he was, you know, his message by, by his very nature kind of prompts that. Um, and the, the biggest thing was they just, they all had preconceived notions of who Jesus was and what he, what he should be. And when he didn't fit that, they didn't care for it. And they had preconceived notions about what he ought to be teaching, and they, that didn't fit that. So we're going to try to see some, we're going to get that illustrated now. We're going to see some people that actually had done that, and we'll see why. And so, he, so then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazan, and woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that it were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. So, what's going on here? I mean, that's like, man, this makes me uncomfortable. I mean, Jesus, dude, why are you so mad? I mean, come on, just because they won't believe in you? I mean, come on. I mean, is Jesus, I don't know, what, do you feel like Jesus has just condemned all the people in three cities right to hell? I mean, that's, that's rough stuff. This is the Jesus we don't, that we don't like, right? We don't care for this, this Jesus much. So that makes us kind of, you know, and if you're not accustomed to the Bible and you, this is, or you're not accustomed to church, this is the kind of stuff you think gets preached all the time, right? This uh, hellfire and brimstone, get them. And, you know, we're like, wow, you're, this is the harsh in my vibe, Jesus. And so it, it, it stands to reason we should, we, should, we should question it because if that's our view of what he, what's going on, I think that you know, we need to ask ourselves, is that really what's going on? So let's, let's dig into it a little bit. So the first thing to think about is he says, repent. If, if I had done my miracles in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. And he's condemning these cities for not repenting. Well, what is repenting? Right? That's, a, that's a good Christian Bible word that we don't really, really understand. And so imagine that um, you've invited me over to your house, and you tell me kind of where you live, and I think, oh, yeah, I, I know where that is. And so I start, 
I get in my car, and I start driving over there, and I get, get a little ways, and I think I ought to be there, and it, I'm not finding it. I, this, it's, it. It's not where I thought it was. And so I call you on my, on my phone. I, I'm, I, I can't find your house. I, I don't know where, where it is. And you say, well, where are you? Right? And I'm like, well, I'm such and such. I can see them at this road or this. I see, you know, Walmart over here or whatever. I'm, this is where I am. Ah, okay, I see what you did. Yeah, 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 yeah. You turned left at that one stoplight when you should have turned right. So what I need, go on down. I know where you are. Go on down a little bit. Turn around there. And if you go on north there and come around the block that way, you'll, you'll find my, because I'll be right over there, and you'll see the, my blue truck sitting in the, in the driveway. And then, so, so what do I do? Right? I have new information, right? And so I pick a new way, right? I, I repent of the way I was going. I changed my mind. I changed my direction. And that's, what re- that's all repent means. It, it means to change your way. To, you get new information of some kind, and now you're going to repent of what, the road you're on and go a new way. And so Jesus says he denounces these cities because he came preaching to them a message. So keep that in mind. What was the message? He came preaching to them a message, and they wouldn't repent. They wouldn't change their minds. They wouldn't change their, the path they were on and go a different way in spite of miracles that he performed. And if he had performed those same miracles in Tyre and Sodom or, or Sodom, they would have repented is what he's saying. So they would have changed their minds. They would have changed and went a different direction from the direction they were on then. Um, another kind of odd thing about that is he, he condemns a whole city. Like, really? That doesn't... I mean, we can talk about a city as a person sometimes, right? You'll hear a radio announcer or somebody like that say, you know, good morning, Kendallville, or how are you doing today? How's everybody doing? Or Kendallville, won't, Kendallville will never support that, or Kendallville really likes their new middle school, or maybe they don't, I don't know. But, you know, it's that, that kind of thing, right? We talk about a city that way, kind of having a character. But do you, do you, have you ever, I mean, would, would a whole city be condemned to hell for not repenting? That doesn't make sense. And we know there were believers in these cities. I mean, some of the apostles were from uh, Bethsaida, and, and Peter had a house in Capernaum. So there's some things about that that kind of don't make sense. And um, so let's think about what he says. He says, And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. So when you hear the word Hades, what, what do you think? Hell. Yeah, we think hell all, all the time, right? Um, the Greek word Hades doesn't really mean hell per se. What Hades means is the grave or death. Um, it's the place of death or the place of the grave. It's the place of the dead. So in a sense, there's a sense in which all men go to Hades because all men die. Right? You go to Hades. You go to death. You go to your grave. Um, the, the Hebrew word Sheol which is often translated hell or, um, or Hades, says the same thing. So your, your, Bible, your Bible translation may say many different things. It may say down to the depths. It may say um, uh, Hades. It's, it may, they may not translate it all and just call it Hades. They may say death, destruction. And a lot of times when a, a Bible writer is talking about Hades, what they really mean is doom and destruction. You're going to destruction. You're going to death. You're going to your doom. And we kind of talk that way, I mean, even in our own, in our own modern language, right? We talk, we say, 
you know, ever since that guy took over that plant, that thing has gone to blank in a, in a basket, right? We say, well, it goes to hell in a handbasket, right? I mean, we say that. And so that's a word we use. That's a term, that's a, a concept we're familiar with, is that things can go really bad. And I think that's really what he's saying to these guys. He's saying, listen, because you didn't repent when I came and preached my message to you, you've got, a, you've got destruction coming. You're on a bad path. You're on a path that's not going to turn out well because of what you guys are doing, because of, because you won't listen to my message and change your ways and do what I'm asking you to do. And so that begs us, that, that makes us ask, well, what's, what, is, what is it that he's kind of asking them to do, and how are they different from these other places he's talking about? How is that all connected? So the first thing we've got to talk about a little bit is who they are and who were these places that he was comparing them to. So the scene is in the, around the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus did most of his ministry. Galilee was a large lake in the northern so- part of Israel, and it's still there today. It's about the size of half of Noble County, so it's a very large lake, very large freshwater lake. It's kind of shaped like an almond, like my hand. And so Capernaum was up here, Chorazin was here, and Bethsaida was right about here. Tyre and Sidon were cities that were about here on the Mediterranean Sea. And Tyre, in the, in the, in the prophets, the prophets were guys that, that God had sent to the nation of Israel to pronounce to, to warn them on their, off their path or, or to warn other cities around them. And then the prophets, when they talked about Tyre, they, they uh, um, always described Tyre as being very arrogant. And Tyre did um, kind of uh, they were in charge of this area. <laughs> they dominated, that's the word I was looking for. Tyre dominated the area both culturally and uh, financially, because it was a large trading center. And Tyre was on a little isthmus of land out in the Mediterranean on an island. And so they were pretty hard to, to uh, take down. And so the prophet Isaiah, about 700 years before Jesus, had told Tyre, listen, your day's coming. Because they were on, an on-again, off-again enemy of the people of Israel. And so the, Isaiah was like, man, you guys got to change your ways. You, you got destruction coming. And in fact, in Isaiah 23, he uses the word sheol, or grave, or the word that gets translated in the Greek, Hades. You've got Hades coming on you, right? You've got Hades to pay, Tyre, because of, what, because of the way you are. And, so, and that's exactly what happened. So there were these Assyrians and the Babylonians, and finally Alexander the Great under the, with the Greeks in around 300 B.C. rolled down through this area, and they destroyed Tyre. For the first time ever, Tyre was taken down. And it was a big deal. And this is only about 300 years before when Matthew was writing. So that's fairly recent history to these people. These people are around Galilee. And now they're in a very similar situation with the Romans. And so what Jesus is saying is, listen, your your destruction, because you won't repent, is going to be worse than theirs. And and they're looking at this going, you know, we don't understand how scandalous that was for them. Because that would be like us saying, like a prophet coming to us and saying, listen, if you don't change your ways, the destruction you have coming, if I, if I had gone and performed my miracles for the Nazis, they would have repented. Your destruction is going to be worse than theirs. 
Or if I had come and, and, and did these miracles for Al-Qaeda, right, they would have repented. Your destruction is going to be worse than theirs. I mean, that's the kind of, that, I mean, that, the response you feel, that's what they were feeling. Like, are you kidding me? Tyre is evil. You're, you're, what, what do we, really? And so you get a better feeling for why they responded the way they did. Jesus was really getting in their face here, saying, listen, you've got to change your ways. And then he has the gall to describe, to compare them to, to Sodom. Now, I don't, I, Sodom is a little more um, familiar to us. Sodom and Gomorrah were ancient cities. They were in around 2,000 years before Jesus. And so they were at the time of Abraham. So they were as much removed from Jesus as we are from Jesus in time. But everybody in the ancient world knew about Sodom and Gomorrah. And so they knew that Sodom and Gomorrah were so evil that God just had to destroy them. Again, how would you like to be compared to them guys? And so Jesus says, if I had performed my miracles in Sodom, they would have repented. You guys aren't repenting. So they're, they're going to have it much worse, or you're going to have it much worse than they. And so, again, we kind of, why, why is that, right? Well, I, he kind of tells us. I mean, in Luke, over in Luke, again, we mentioned Luke earlier. Luke talks about this. He says, listen, the servant who knows his master's will and does not do it, or is, does not get ready or does not do what the master wants, will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with a few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. Now, we have a, again, we, we come to the Bible reading, like, well, does that mean I'm, that God will punish people harsher? Well, yeah, but that's not really what Jesus is saying. Jesus has given us a principle of life. And we know this is true, right? This isn't anything new to us. We do this with our kids, right? If our kids do something that they don't know is wrong, we may punish them anyway for it, but way less than we would if we had already told them not to do it, right? I told you not to. You know, not only are you grounded for a week, you're grounded for a, a month, right? We do that. But if they didn't know, we're like, ah, you know, slap on the wrist, don't do that anymore, right? Or we would do that, we expect that treatment at work. If we don't know what, that what we're doing is wrong, we're not going to get nearly as much as if we had got it, if, if we had known ahead of time. Or your husband, right? If he's... If he uses a word that you don't care for, and you've never told him, I don't care for that word, right? You're going to say, I hope, hey, I don't care for that word, and okay, I'm sorry, and then you let it go. But then tomorrow, if he does it again, now things are going to be a little rougher, right? That's just how we are. That's just human nature, and that's all Jesus is saying. It's human nature. It's the reality of life. And so when he's condemning these cities, he's like, you guys know better. I mean, and you're seeing my miracles, and you're still not willing to, you know, listen to me and change your ways? Really? Come on. If I had done this in Tyre and Sidon, they'd have repented. Why won't you? So you think you're going to get off easy? Huh? So one last word about this is this whole idea of, of day of judgment. So when we hear day of judgment, what do we think of? You know, you think end time, right? You think... The great white throne in the time when, when men's fate are, are decided. Well, uh, yes, that's true. It can be that. And it may be that here. Um, 
there's certainly an element of that here. But I think that it, the day of judgment is not always the final judgment. Day of judgment can be any day of judgment that you have, any day of reckoning. And very often in the Bible, that's exactly what it's talking about. When you hear the, you see the term day of judgment, you've got to put some context around it and understand that it's a, it can be any day of reckoning. So you could argue that the United States, is a res, because of the Civil War, that we had a day of reckoning, a day of judgment over slavery. And Abraham Lincoln actually believed that. He believed that the reason the Civil War was so bloody and lasted as long as it did was because it was a day of reckoning from God over not dealing with slavery earlier. You could argue that Nazi Germany got their day of reckoning because they were defeated in war. They had a day of judgment. You could argue that Japan, at the end of World War II, got a day of reckoning, a day of judgment because of their Im imperial ambitions. And so there's all these different times in the Bible where we have a day of judgment or a day of reckoning. And so what Jesus is telling these cities is that they've got a day of reckoning coming, a day of judgment coming. And that's exactly what happens. So one of the reasons why we misunderstand some of these things is because we we've never lived it. We, we don't know the history. So I'm going to give you a little history lesson. So we talked about where those cities were. Here's, my, here's the, the, the Sea of Galilee again and these cities around here. And right about here is a place called Mount Arbel. Mount Arbel is a 1,200-foot plateau that overlooks the Sea of Galilee. And you could stand at the top of Mount Arbel today and see the ruins of these three places off in the distance. And this, the Mount Arbel now has these huge white cliffs, and now you can go rock climbing and rappelling and all kinds of act outdoor activities that they have available for you at, on Mount Arbel. But in Jesus' time, there was no rock climbing or repelling going on there because it was the, the hot spot for the zealots. Now, who are the zealots? Well, what, the reason they chose Mount Arbel is because it was very easily defended and it had a series of tunnels and caverns in which they, they lived and stored their, their weapons. And so they had found this, they, it was their hideout against the Romans. And every so often when a Roman convoy would be going through the area, the, the zealots would pour out of the, these these caverns and tunnels, and attack the convoy and run back up into Mount Arbel and disappear. And so their recruiting area were these, this area, Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and all these towns along the Sea of Galilee was where they did their best recruiting. And it stands to reason if they found this to be a, a friendly area to recruit that it was also an area that, that supported their cause. And their cause was kill as many Romans as you possibly can as fast as possible. That's just what they did. And there was good reason for that. The Roman occupying army was very brutal. And if, the, you, if, if you didn't, didn't kowtow to Rome, you were done. And the Romans were crucifying Jews on a regular basis to keep the populace under control. And they, were, they, they knew how to control an area. And they, did, they, took, they accepted no rivals. And so these zealots felt like the appropriate response to Rome being there was to kill them. Kill as many of them as you can as fast as possible. And so what they were looking for when the Messiah came was a return of a guy named Judas Maccabeus who had done the same thing about 150 years before this. Again, recent history for them, ancient history for us. 
this guy's nickname was the Hammer. And he had driven out a group called the, Syria, the Syrians under a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, who had been oppressing the Jews. And so, so when, when the Hammer came on the scene, he, he defeated the Syrians and drove them out of there. And then Israel got its independence for a short period. So this is all fairly recent for the Israelites. And then they see all these Romans around here, and they're like, where's God? Where's his Messiah? And where's the hammer? And then Jesus comes along, and he can control the weather, and he can raise the dead, and he can heal lepers, and he can do all these miracles. Jesus, where's the hammer? We're expecting the hammer. We need to get rid of these Romans. We need to, you know, just say the word, and we're there. We're ready for you. And you see this played out over and over and over again that they had these preconceived notions about who Jesus was going to be and what he was going to do. And to them, he was going to defeat the enemy. And guess what? He was there to defeat the enemy. But he wasn't there to defeat the enemy that they thought. Because what Jesus taught them was, guess what? You can't stop killing enemies. You'll always have an enemy to kill. Right? You'll, you mean, you'll, you'll, you'll never run out of enemies to kill. That's not what my message is about. That's not what God wants for you. God doesn't want you to just kill enemies. It doesn't do any good. So we get earlier in Matthew, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other one too. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give him your coat. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, this is, we don't understand these things because we're not, this is not our, we're not accustomed to this, right? So what's this deal about my, going on two miles? So if a Roman troop was coming through your town and you were hanging out with your buds down by the local well and they stopped to get a drink at the well and so they throw off all their packs and their gear that they're carrying and they're getting the drinks and they're laughing and cutting up and carrying on and making, making your friend help them with the water and they're, ogling your women and, you know, blah, 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 and doing all these things. And you're sitting over there going, man, I hate those guys. You know, those guys, those, are, those guys, I just, oh, God, I wish God would do something about them guys, right? I wish there were some of those zealots around because they would take care of them. And maybe we should go, uh, my buddy, my cousin, he's, my cousin on the second side wants removed. You know, he's got, he, he's up there, he, he's in tight with the zealots. Let's go get them, and I don't know, they'll probably be gone by then. You know, you're sitting over there thinking all these things, right, about these Roman, this Roman occupying force that's in your town. And one of these Roman soldiers, you know, they get ready to leave, and he looks down at his pack, and he walks over and says, hey, you, Jew, yeah, you with the face, get up, come here, pick up my pack, and your friend, pick up my friend's pack, get over here and do it. Guess what? You got to. It's the law that you've got to do that. Because that Roman soldier is there to protect you, supposedly, and keep the peace for you. And so you should be happy to do it. Well, you're going to be... You do it because you don't want to get a sword through the gut. But you're not going to be happy about it. Jesus says, I don't want you responding that way. My followers respond a different way. My followers say, no problem. In fact, let me carry it for two miles for you, because I know you've had a long journey. I know you're tired. And I know you're hot and dusty, and I know you're here to protect me. So let me do that for you. Or 
the slap on the cheek, right? That was a way of insulting people. So let's say you're, you're a Jew, and you walk up to the tax collector's booth, and you don't have the money for the tax today. So you say to the guy, listen, I, I, I don't have the money. I'm trying to get it. Can I come back tomorrow and get it for you? I mean, I, d- I promise I'll pay. And the tax collector says, you're paying double if you come back tomorrow. And then he stands up, takes his hand, and smacks you on the cheek. You dog, cur, don't have the money. What's your response? Jesus says, I don't think you got it all out. If that, you know, that's, that's rough. That's a hard pill to swallow. Now, if you're a zealot and you're in the, living in this area, that's an extremely hard pill to, to swallow. Because they believed that the appropriate response to the Roman occupation was to kill Romans. And Jesus says that, no, you'll never run out of enemies to kill. My followers need to have a different attitude. Our enemy is not the Romans. Our enemy is hatred. Our enemy is, is, is bitterness. Is wanting is revenge. My followers don't take revenge. My followers don't don't hate others. My followers respond a completely different way to those around them, to their oppressors. And so Jesus came and, when, and he, he actually showed us that. Because guess what? The enemy were the spiritual forces of evil around them. The enemy was Satan and his legions and what they had done to humanity. And Jesus, in order to defeat those, that enemy, allowed himself to be killed by them. He defeated the enemy by being tortured. He defeated the enemy by going to the cross. And then he defeated the enemy by being resurrected. And he says, listen, those people that you think are enemies aren't enemies. Those people, that that guy that irritates you at work is not your enemy. That person that you can't stand, not your enemy. That person in your family, not your enemy. Your enemy is the same enemy that I already defeated on the cross and in the resurrection. And Jesus has earned the right, because of those events, to demand a high standard from us, one that we have difficulty accepting and difficulty living up to. And that is that you take the person that you think is your enemy and not defeat them, not kill them, but turn them into not your enemy. Turn them into a friend if you can, at least someone you, you can tolerate if not. And I had, I've had this very experience. I had a guy at work that I didn't talk to for a year because he had irritated me so much. And I don't really care for him much. But one day I, I, I'd heard that his wife wasn't doing very good, and I saw him like five or six times in the same week. And I kept thinking to myself, every time I saw him, I thought, you, you, sh- you should talk to that guy. I know you don't like him, but talk to him. And God really put it on my heart. You need to talk to him. It's like, I can't stand that guy. I, we need to talk to him. He's a jerk. He's an idiot. He's stupid even. Talk to him. So I stopped him one day. I said, hey, uh, how's your wife doing? 
And he just stopped, and he j- he looked at me, and he's like, well, she's actually doing kind of better. And we talked for 5, 10, 15 minutes or so. And uh, I could tell it was, it was a re- he's, his shoulders just dropped and he just relaxed. And, you know, thank you for talking to me about that. I needed, I needed to talk to somebody about how my wife was doing. And I walked away from that encounter thinking, that's what Jesus asked me to do. Right? The, the people you, that you don't like, that you can't stand, that irritate you the most, are the ones that you most need to go and and deal with and love them instead of hating them. Because guess what? You can't kill all your enemies. There'll just be another one. There's always another enemy. There's always another person. There's always another boss. There's always another neighbor. There's always another whatever it is that causes you pain and hurt and anger. And we're called upon to respond a different way. And it's difficult, right? Um, It's very difficult. But here's the promise. The promise is that if you're willing to do that, if you are willing to repent and go a different way, that he'll support you, he'll teach you, and you'll learn. And he'll help you through it. And he'll forgive you when you don't do it very well. And when when you falter. And when you get angry and upset and yell at somebody that you shouldn't yell at, it's okay. Keep trying. The important thing is you're my child, and you're doing the best you can. Pick yourself up and start over. Do it again. Now, if you're not a believer or you're not a Christian, right, there's a message here that it's a a high calling. And so if, if you've held off, on making that decision, I don't. I kind of don't blame you. It, being called to, to become a follower of Jesus takes a lot. It's easy to do. All you do is believe and accept the forgiveness of your sins. Piece of cake. But after that, it gets a little tougher. And it, and it's not because Jesus lays it on you but because he's called you to a higher standard of life, a higher standard of living. And if you've been a Christian for a while, right, that's, that's where we're being called. We're being called to act differently from everybody else. And the, the, the good news is that there's power available to do that if you allow it. So um, I'm going to finish there. Uh, the, it seems like every time that, that I get up here, it, I'm happen to be preaching a section that's a like a kick in the gut. So, um, but it's important to remember that, um, that, that Jesus also tells us that while he holds us to a high standard, that, and this is something we'll talk about in a few weeks, that the, the yoke is easy and the burden is light. And the reason why is because he's there to help us bear it. And he's there to pick us up when we fall down. So if you bow your head for just a minute, if you're, if you're not a Christian or you're not a believer and, and you want to be, it's easy, right? You just believe because Jesus did something incredible. Jesus came, became a man, became a human being. This is God becoming, putting on skin. And he, in order to defeat the real enemy, was willing to allow them to torture him, 
and kill him on a cross. And three days later, he rose again. And he did that so that each and every individual could believe in that, and by believing in that, have eternal life, to be raised again with him just like he was. And that is powerful. So if, that, if you haven't done that, you want to just raise your hand or look up at me. I'll pray for you and bless you through that. And, and if you're online watching, I, you know, we can't see you, but God knows. And we'd like to ask a blessing on you as well. And if you are a Christian, if you've been a believer for a while, maybe this is a wake-up call for you today. Maybe there's somebody in your life, when I said, you know, we all have enemies, if a name popped into your head, or if you, if you have somebody in your life that just been, you just, just got to deal with in some way, you know, God can help you through that. And just, just raise your hand and let me know. And I'll, I'll pray for you too. That I understand that. That, you know, it's the way life goes. It's part of life. And those enemies will never go away. And the key is learning how to make those enemies not your enemy by defeating them, but by letting them defeat you. By, by, letting to, by turning them into a friend instead of an enemy. And that's one of the hardest things that we have to do but it is so important to remember that that person, just like you, is made in the image of God. And they are deserving of honor and dignity and love, even if they don't act that way. Father, we thank you so much for what Jesus did for us and the message today. Thank you that you provided a way for us to know all about you and all about your requirements of us. And Father, we know sometimes that, gosh, things are hard to accept and hard to swallow. And we just ask for your help to internalize it, understand it, and live it. And we understand that every day that, that we, we just fall so short all the time, just all we can do is, is fall before you and ask for your forgiveness and help to do better the next day. And Father, there's some here today that are really struggling or just have lived their whole lives that way, really, and just ask you to bless them and give them peace and help them to understand that, they're, that it's not too late. You can always repent and go the other way anytime, and that you'll be there to help us do that when the time comes. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.